In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. If any of you were here this past Christmas at our middle service of lessons and carols, you'll notice we got the organ fixed. (laughs) One of my very favorite people in Christian history is a 15th century woman named Marjorie Kemp. She's from the East Anglia part of England, Uh, not far from where part of my family is distantly from. I love to think of Bedingfields watching Marjorie Kemp and disapproving way back. She's not quite a saint because she was tried for heresy again and again, but because she was so smart and so funny and so popular with the crowds, no one could touch her. Marjorie had visions of God's love, Like all of us, she struggled with sin and challenge and whether God loved her or not. But she received visions. She knew her scriptures. She would preach in the streets. She would talk to people about God. But more than anything else, Marjorie cried. She wept everywhere she went. She cried on her way to Rome. She cried to Santiago de Compostela. She cried to Jerusalem. She cried through all of the important religious pilgrimage sites of Europe. She shared her tears with the Archbishop of Canterbury, with the Bishop of Lincoln, with the Holy Woman and Saint Julian of Norwich. Marjorie cried not only for herself, though. She cried for others, She cried for the the sins and the pains of the world. In her crying, Marjorie Kemp joins others from the larger Christian tradition whose bond with Christ is so deep, so pure, so real, that their expression of love, of penitence, of compassion comes out of them not so much in words, but through tears. This is called, appropriately enough, a gift of tears. And what a gift it is. It's always been a rare and radical thing. But especially in our day, to be able to cry in the face of pain or frustration and connect even with the pain of God is a rare, rare thing. Our our culture, after all, still holds up Jackie Kennedy as the ultimate way of grieving, a detached, reserved, distant model that's just not real. We make fun of politicians or leaders who cry. Remember Speaker Boehner? Whenever a reporter cries, a rare thing again. But when it happens, instantly there are stories about that person's reporting. Can they be objective? And don't we often find ourselves telling children and friends and maybe even ourselves, don't cry, don't cry, there's no need to cry. And yet, tears are a part of life. 
Tears are with us at the very beginning. They're often with us at the very end. Tears are in our mother's eyes when we're born. Tears are in the eyes of those who love us when we die. Tears wash through life. And there are plenty of tears in our Easter story. There are the tears of Mary Magdalene, perhaps even a few of our own tears, as Easter brings together so many emotions and memories, and and time collapses upon itself. We just heard how Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early on Easter morning, and she finds there the great stone over the entrance has been moved away. And so in John's Gospel, she runs and tells the others. She tells Simon Peter and John, they look into the tomb, they look at the linen cloths, and they see no body. The disciples leave the tomb, and they go back to their homes. But Mary remains Mary stays there weeping. Mary weeps as she looks into the tomb. But notice that it's only by looking through her tears that she really begins to see. Initially, she sees what looks like two angels. Why are you weeping? They ask. And she turns around and she sees who she thinks is the gardener who turns out to be Jesus, the ultimate April Fool's joke. (laughs) He asks her the same question. And again, through her tears, because of her tears, she recognizes Jesus. Tears express all kinds of things. They express loss and regret and sorrow. In the Christian tradition, tears sometimes represent sorrow for sins. Tears show that we're connected, that we're rooted, that we're aware, that we can feel, and that, at least to some extent, we acknowledge we're a part of things. We're a part of things when they go well. We're a part of things when they don't go so well. There was a 7th century monk, St. John Climacus, who wrote, God, in his love for us, gave us tears. If God, in his mercy, had not granted to us this second baptism, then few indeed would be saved. He goes on to say, when our soul departs from this life, we shall not be accused because we have not worked miracles. But we shall all certainly have to account to God because we have not wept unceasingly for sin. John calls tears a second baptism. As we weep for our sin, sure, that's the easy part. But also as we weep for the sins of others, for the sins of our world, And so weeping, crying, tears become a form of prayer. And sometimes that's the best we can do. When there's yet another school shooting, tears are called for. When another young black person is shot in the back in his grandparents' backyard, tears are where we need to start. 
where whole countries and regions spiral downward in war and hopelessness, tears are in order. When the majority of our country seems to see rising stock as the only measure of success, telling the poor and refugees and immigrants and the elderly and the sick and everyone else, take care of yourselves. We're busy watching the market and we're doing well. Then a person of Christian faith, any Christian faith, even just a little smidgen of Christian faith, needs to simply stop and cry. Mary Magdalene's tears are a detail, of course, a detail in a much larger story, but they're, a, they're an important detail, I think. It's only through her tears that she begins to see Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Through her tears, she begins to see new possibilities for herself, for her friends, for all those she loves, for the world. Mary stands at that tomb weeping, and we don't know for how long. Perhaps like Psalm 30, she spent the night weeping, wondering if joy could come in the morning. She probably knew Psalm 42 that speaks of tears being one's only food day and night. Maybe she prayed with words like Psalm 56, saying to God, You have noted my lamentation. Now put my tears into your bottle. Take them away. I'm done. And yet Mary's tears are the means of insight, of growth, of new life. Mary's tears take her to a new place. Her her weeping makes a way as, as she realizes that Jesus is alive, that he is risen. Mary's tears remind us helpfully, I think, that Easter is not just about lilies and bunnies and butterflies. Even if we think about the butterfly, it moves from crawling to flying. And there's a messy, death-like process in between. If you ever open a cocoon, you see it's a big gooey blob. The caterpillar almost has to completely decompose before it can ever begin to develop into something new and beautiful and fly. Before a new project can be started, normally an old one has to die in some way. Before a new habit or discipline can begin, an old one needs to die out, usually. Before following a new dream, an old one needs to recede or step back. Theologically, Good Friday's finish makes possible a whole new chapter in our spiritual and social and emotional lives. The old has to be let go. In the Revelation to John, God promises a new day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Tears can seem foolish. All those in Christian history who have cried have been thought to be fools but fools for Christ's sake. Fools like Mary Magdalene. Fools like St. Francis of Assisi. Fools like Marjorie Kemp and so many others. But especially on this 
April 1st Easter, let us give thanks for the gift of tears. Let us give thanks that Christ's death and resurrection means for us that no matter how hard things may seem or how blessed, how far away God may feel or how close, no matter how many tears, God makes a way into new life, risen with Christ. Alleluia, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia.